We've come now to the third uh, of these series of countdowns on civilization. The first we saw in chapter 5, chapters 5 and 6, as the seals were broken, and uh, we saw the agencies that will bring man's rule to an end uh, unleashed upon the earth. And that series of seven events culminates in the second coming of Christ. Then in uh, chapters 8 through 11, we saw the second series of seven happenings, seven agencies unleashed in human affairs, and uh, they're described there in terms of seven trumpet blasts. Today we come to the seven bowls, or the seven uh, pots of wrath that are poured out upon mankind. Now, if you remember, in each case, as these uh, uh, series, the sequence of seven, is described for us, there is a brief interlude or introduction that places the origin of these events in heaven. And uh, this is what you have here in chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the introduction to what follows. Let's begin reading with verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, or blows, seven strokes, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the, from the number of his name standing by the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy, are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, or the sanctuary, which is the tabernacle of testimony, or the tent of meeting in heaven, was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the sanctuary, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girders, girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, we're told in this chapter that John sees another sign in heaven. As, we, as we've noted uh, in our prior studies in Revelation, there are two great signs in heaven. One, the sign of the woman in chapter 12. And as we saw, the woman is symbolic of Israel, the nation through which God brought the Messiah into the world. And uh, the sign is intended to signify God's plan to bring salvation to the earth. It's a sign in heaven. Uh, the point being it's a sign from the world of the unseen. Heaven is not merely a place off there. Heaven is another dimension here, all around us. It's the world of, of spiritual activity, the sphere in which God operates. And uh, John sees coming out of that realm of, of reality a plan to save the world, and it's through a nation, the nation of Israel, and through the birth of the child. As Isaiah puts it, unto us, that is, us Jews, 
a child is born, uh, and he will be the prince of peace. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And this was described for us in Revelation under the sign of a woman resplendently uh, arrayed in the sun and the moon with the stars uh, in, her, in her hair. And then furthermore in chapter 12, we saw a second sign, that of the dragon, this great uh, red uh, awesome reptile who is God's opponent, his antagonist, whose purpose it is to thwart and frustrate God's plan to bring salvation to the earth. And now in Revelation, we see the third sign in heaven, which is that of, of seven angels carrying seven large uh, pots full of the wrath of God, which are designated here as the last, the final expression of the wrath of God. In other words, in, in the chapters that follow, we will have described for us God's plan to once for all put evil away and bring about uh, order and rest and peace in the universe. We uh, just returned from vacation. We spent some time in, on the Olympic Peninsula where they measure rain in yards instead of inches. I've never been so glad to see blue sky in all my life. Uh, if it takes all that rain to make it green, I've decided brown is beautiful. <laughs> but as a part of our vacation, we went over to Vancouver Island to Victoria and visited the Parliament Building. The uh, Parliament for the Legislature for British Columbia is located in Victoria, and perhaps many of you have been there. And we had an opportunity to sit in the gallery and listen to the uh, proceedings. And it was quite interesting. I always, in my mind, uh, pictured Canadians and Britishers in general as very conservative. But uh, they were arguing uh, some issue having to do with water rights. I never could quite understand what was involved, but they were shouting at each other across the aisle, the opposition and the uh, party that's in, in uh, control of government right now are, are quite at odds with each other, and they were shouting and yelling, and one man leaped to his feet and said, uh, he told you to shut up, so shut up. And uh, chaos reigned for about ten minutes until the Speaker of the House had had enough, and he brought his gavel down on the table with a loud uh, bang, and, and he said, order! And immediately there was order. And everyone sat down, and, and they were able to go on with the proceedings in an atmosphere of peace and quiet. And I thought when he did that, now that, that's a good expression of the final wrath of God. Uh, God is letting man have his way now and do what he pleases and, uh, and, and wreck life and the quality of it and destroy our environment and hurt one another. But uh, the time is coming when God will say, that's enough, that's enough. And he'll bring all this chaos to an end. And that's what's described for us in the uh, chapters that follow here in the book of Revelation. This is the final inevitable expression of the wrath of God. Now we're going to leap over verses 2 through 4 for a few moments and uh, return to those uh, verses a bit later. But uh, the account of the seven angels and the seven plagues is taken up again in verse 5. John writes, After these things I looked... And the sanctuary, which is the tent of meeting in heaven, was open. He's describing here the little, the little tent in which Israel worshipped in the wilderness, this little uh, 45 by uh, 15 structure in, in which uh, the various articles were located and which symbolized the presence of God in the midst of His people. It did at that time and it does today. Uh, the purpose of 
of the symbol in the account here is, again, to depict the idea that God is present and at work among his people. And the tabernacle is opened, and the seven angels come out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright. That is, they are dressed for this occasion. They are righteous in their doings. The judgment they carry out is not the result of some personal peak that God has. He's, he, he didn't just lose his temper and say, I've had enough, but this judgment uh, is carried out in a noble and righteous and just way. It's only right and proper that God should so act at this point in history. And they carry with them seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. I think because the uh, authorized version, the King King's James King James translation, has translated this word vials, we have the idea that these are quite small bowls, but really the word is descriptive of a very large bowl, golden uh, jar of quite large capacity, which are filled to the brim with the wrath of God. And we'll see the results of, of uh, this display of the wrath of God in chapter 16 as these bowls are poured out upon mankind. And then in verse 8, we're told that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His presence, and no one was able to enter the temple. Wherever in the Old Testament the sanctuary is filled with smoke, it's a picture of God present in power and in glory, ready to carry out uh, His His plan, His program for humanity. When the temple, was, the tabernacle was first built, His glory filled it uh, in the form of of a cloud and smoke. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, the mountain was covered with clouds and with smoke and fire. When the temple in uh, Jerusalem was completed, the same phenomenon occurred. It's simply a, an illustration of God present in His full glory, ready to act. And then we're told that no one could enter the temple while the, the glory of God was present there. In other words, there is simply no way to stop this action. It's too late for intercession. Uh, earlier we saw that judgment is carried out because of the prayers of the saints. They cry out, How long, O Lord, before you judge the earth? And now God is acting in judgment. And uh, it would do no good to intercede any further. Nothing can stop it. It's inexorable. It's inevitable. Now, a lot of people are troubled about the wrath of God. And uh, next Sunday I want to take some time to talk about the concept of God's wrath and judgment from a, a, an ethical and biblical standpoint because I know a lot of people are bothered by that idea. How can uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as the children's uh, song so erroneously put it, act in, in wrath? What part does God's wrath have to play in His compassion and mercy? That's a, that's a difficult problem, and we, we want to discuss that next week. But uh, it's enough simply to say at this point that Chapter 15, in this description of the seven angels carrying the bowls out in preparation for the display of the wrath of God, all of this is introductory to what follows. And it's right and proper that God should judge the earth at this final moment in history. Now, where I want us to center our attention this morning is on the three verses, verses 2 through 4. Because here in this in the second scene... We have another vision. John looks out upon this scene in heaven and he sees a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, he doesn't mean this is a glass sea. 
a crystalline sea. The expression, a sea of glass, is a very common Hebrew idiom for uh, a placid body of water. There's no turmoil on this sea. It's quiet. There are no waves. There's, there's nothing to upset the tranquility of, of this scene. People aren't uh, pacing the floor and biting their fingernails and wringing their hands and, and crying out in anguish. Everything is under control. And uh, he sees a, a rosy glow, a red glow on the sea as though the sun is setting, perhaps symbolic of the, of the coming judgment. But uh, it's a picture of peace and quiet. And he notes alongside the sea a, a group of people. Uh, most of our translations say on the sea, but uh, the preposition that's used can just as well be translated alongside the sea. They're not standing on a sea of glass. They're standing alongside the shore of a glassy sea, a quiet, tranquil body of water. No one is upset. No one is nervous. Everything is quiet and orderly because this group of people have a new frame of reference. Uh, as we read through chapter 16, we'll see that, that literal hell is breaking out upon the earth. Chaos reigns. Everybody is going mad. But uh, not this group of people. They're quiet. They're at peace. They're at ease. They're not upset. They're not restless. Because they have a different frame of reference. They're, uh, their life is not tied to the uh, gross national product or the price index or the prime rate, or uh, the state of their marriage, or their health, they're peaceful. And furthermore, they're described here in, in Revelation 15 as winners. They're conquering. Uh, unfortunately, the New American Standard translates it as though it's something in the past. These are those who have come off victorious, but uh, actually the idea is a present, ongoing uh, action. They're winning. He uses a peculiar expression that, that is very much like our idiom. Uh, they, ha they snatched uh, victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, back in the uh, late 60s, I remember going to one of the playoff games between the Vikings and the 49ers. And uh, the 49ers were 14 points down. And we thought the game was lost and we wanted to get away before the crowd... Uh, and their automobiles pinned us in, and so we started to leave, and, and we made it about as far as the, uh, one of the out ramps, and the 49ers miraculously scored a, a touchdown. And there, was only about, there were only about 10 or 12 seconds left, and we thought there's absolutely no way they can win the game, but we thought we'd wait a few moments, and uh, they pulled it off. They, won, they actually won the game. It's one of the most amazing uh, athletic e events I've ever seen. They... They pulled off a victory at the last moment. And, and that's the way this, uh, this group is described here. John uses exactly the same sort of idiom. At the last moment, they snatched away victory. And that, of course, is characteristic of, of Christians. It, it always looks like we're going under. Sometimes right to the very end, it appears that we're done for. And the Lord miraculously delivers us. Now, that's the way these people are described. They have come off victorious at the last minute. It looks like they've been defeated. 
but they've conquered, they've won, they've been snatched out of the hand of, of the beast. And they're described here as those who have been victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name. That is, they have not bought the lie of the beast that man is the measure of everything. They're not counting on man. They don't believe in man. They don't trust him. They're people who are counting upon God and relying upon Him and believing Him and, and, and acting out of His life rather than out of their own humanity and their own resources and their educations and their backgrounds and their personalities and their physical strength. They've set all of that aside. And they're men and women who are, who are believers. They're counting upon the life of God. And so they're described here as conquerors. The uh, term that's described, uh, that's translated victorious here in chapter 15 is the same, uh, it comes from the same root that's translated overcome in chapters 2 and 3. And as we studied through those letters to the seven churches, we saw that this promise reoccurs to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna, and so forth. These are overcomers. They're winners. And we're told in verses 3 and following that they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, that's not two songs. That's one song. Uh, and the song is given to us here in the verses that follow. The song of Moses is a song of salvation. It's a song of deliverance. Back in the book of Exodus in chapter 15, when Moses and uh, the nation of Israel were delivered by passing through the Red Sea. They sang the song of salvation. The horse and his rider, he said, have been cast into the sea. God did it all. They, they literally had their backs against the wall. They came out of Egypt uh, unprepared for war. They were not uh, a military people. They were, they were agrarian. They were farmers. And, and uh, they raised sheep, herdsmen. And they had no weapons. And uh, they were, they, as they left Egypt, they made it as far as the Red Sea. And the Egyptians chased after them, and they, they couldn't get across the Red Sea. It looked like it was the end of everything, all their hopes and, and dreams. But in the last minute, God opened a way through the sea, and they escaped. And they sang the song of salvation. God did it. We couldn't do it ourselves. He did it. That's the point. And the song that they sing is described for us here, given to us here in verses 3 and 4. Let me read it again. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. I uh, think for myself this must have been a, a hymn that was sung in the early church. It follows the pattern of uh, so much of the liturgy of, of the early church. It begins with a simple poetic statement. It sounds very much like the Psalms, the same type of, of symmetry, parallel, uh, parallelism that you find in the Psalms here. Great and marvelous are thy works, righteous and true are thy ways. And uh, then it's followed by a rhetorical question, Who will not fear? answered by three clauses. Because you alone are holy, God alone has, has righteous character, 
That ought to comfort us when we fail. God is very realistic in His expectations of us. He knows that we're made out of dust. He knows that no one is made out of super dust. He knows that, that we're inclined to fail and, and fall. He alone has perfect character. And then a word about His sovereignty. All the nations will come and worship before Thee. And then a word about His salvation. For Thy righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, God has revealed His salvation in, in this group of people. They have made it through these hard seven years when the whole world is against them. They've come off victorious. And who do they give the credit to? If they were interviewed by uh, some uh, uh, magazine at this time, they would say, we owe it all to God. It's the Lamb who did it. And what strikes me as strange about this is that throughout the book of Revelation, the exhortations have all been addressed to the will. They're charges to obedience, to listen to the Lamb and to follow Him and to take Him seriously and to do what we're called to do as Christians. But uh, this group of people who have come through these awful times and they've conquered, in the end will look back and say, God did it all. And how can we put these things together? Well, it's not that God does 50% of it, and we do 50%. We run into the same paradox that you encounter when you talk about salvation. How did you find yourself in the family of God? Well, on the one hand, someone uh, explained the gospel to you, and you simply believed it. You entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord, and and you became a member of His family on the basis of your faith. And uh, you could look at that transaction and say, you did it. But uh, on the other hand, we know from Scripture that we're called from the foundations of the world, that it's all of God, that He's at work in us to draw us to Himself and to justify us and ultimately to glorify us. And so on the other side of the uh, coin, it's all of God. Now, the same thing that's true of our salvation is true of our sanctification. The whole process of sanctification, though it calls from us an effort of the will, we have to resist sin. We have to strain against temptation. We have to obey. At the same time, it's all of God. He's doing it all. He's at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, I can't explain that paradox, but it is of tremendous comfort to me. To know that salvation belongs to God. It's up to Him. I don't have to sanctify myself. He's at work to do it. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he prays that Christ may be formed in them, that's what he has in mind. That Christ may grow up within us and sanctify us fully and make us what we ought to be. Change us from the inside out. Change the real me, not just the, the actions that I take, not just the behavior, but the real me inside. In other words, God has to work some magic upon me. He has to do something that I can't do. All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the uh, story of Beauty and the Beast. And uh, you know that for some reason the uh, the handsome prince was changed into a loathsome beast, and he lived up in a tower. And the only way he could be changed back into a man was to be kissed by a, a fair young maiden. 
and uh, after great trials and tribulations, a young maiden comes along who's willing to kiss the beast, and he turns into a man. Now, that's magic. And I say this reverently, that's the same sort of magic that God is working upon our life. He kisses us, and He changes us into real men and women. He has to change us down inside. As Jesus put it, the good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. God has to change our heart. I can't change my heart. I can't do anything about the attitudes and the moods that I've carried with me all through my life, the habits that uh, I picked up as a, as a child. I can do virtually nothing about those, but God can change me. I, I was thinking this past week, I, whenever uh, Carolyn and I have a, what we might euphemistically call a disagreement, um, a fight, whatever, and I find myself uh, reacting in anger or uh, uh, withdrawing or whatever, um, at the end of the day, as I'm thinking back on those sins against charity or love, I'm inclined to forgive them because I, my excuse is I was provoked. Uh, you know, it wasn't deliberate. It, it hit me too fast. I couldn't recover quick enough. And that wasn't really me. That was just an angry reaction. And if I'd had a little more time to work on it, then I wouldn't have reacted like that. But the truth is, that is really me. That is really what I'm like. And uh, more than anything else, what reveals the true character of my heart are these times when I'm suddenly jostled and I don't have time to work things out. It just spills out. And that's me. And I can't do anything about that. Uh, let me give you a sort of a corny illustration. Um, six or seven years ago, Joshua and I were in Texas. My sister and brother-in-law have a dairy farm in Greenville, Texas, and they milk about 150 cows, so it's a pretty large operation. They have a number of large buildings, and one of them is a granary. Keep, it's a feed barn. And... Uh, uh, there are a number of rats, large rats, that live in that feed barn. And Joshua and I discovered one of the great sports in life is to shoot rats. <laughs> and so we would load up uh, my brother-in-law's and sister's pistols with rat shot, and we would go out to the barn and shoot rats. And the first time we went out there, um, Joshua was so excited, he was talking all the way out. And uh, he, he made a lot of racket outside the barn door. And then we opened the barn doors, and there weren't any rats. And he was really disappointed. So I said, now, wait a minute. I know there are rats out there. Let's try another approach. And we went back in the house, and we waited about an hour. And then we crept up to the barn, and we flung the doors open, and the place was full of rats. They were all over the place. And we just had a great time shooting rats. <laughs> now, I think that's somewhat illustrative of what happens to us. There are apparently rats in our soul. And uh, if we give ourselves uh, time to recover, we don't see the rats. We don't realize what's there. But those moments when people break in upon our privacy, uh, what is really there is revealed. And that's what God has to do something about.
I really can't change my character very much. And the older I get, the more I see that I can't. I'm pretty much what I've always been, apart from the grace of God. Only God can work in those hidden recesses of the heart to change us. When we were on vacation, I went to hear a friend of mine preach in Squim, Neil Smith, who's a very fine Bible teacher, and he was expounding on Psalm 19. And for the first time in my life, I understood what the last verse of Psalm 19 means. When David said, Cleanse thou me from secret faults, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. And that's exactly what David means, or Asaph means in that psalm. God has to cleanse us from these secret faults, that is, these, these hidden sins. He has to change the real me. I can't touch that part of my life. C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully in uh, Mere Christianity. He says, if you are a poor creature poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom He will bless. You see? So if you're here this morning and, and you've, you're controlled by some habit that you've not been able to put away, or uh, you have a, a disposition that, that hurts people, you lash out in anger, or there is some sexual perversion in your life that you've struggled and struggled against, don't despair. God is at work. We do need to struggle against these things. We need to resist sin. We need to uh, respond with all of our will to the truth. But that's not the whole story. God is at work in His own time and in His own way to move us on to maturity and to clean the rats out of our barn and to change the real person. The only proviso is that we have to be willing to give Him everything. It doesn't work if, if we hold something back, if we keep something in reserve. We have to be willing to give Him our whole life. That's, salvation doesn't work otherwise. He has to have it all. I, you know, so often I, I think that we, we think of the Christian life along these lines. There are certain demands against myself. And uh, I know that I'm obligated to be unselfish at certain times. And so we decide that we're going to set aside ourselves in our relationship with our children or, or our mate. And our intentions are, are good. So we set out to, to do that. And it works for a while. But uh, the demands against us as people in the world are infinite. The demands of our conscience, even, are infinite. And after a while, we start getting angry and resentful that we have to give up so much. And we have to set our, our rights aside. We don't like that. And uh, it makes us angry and frustrated. And it doesn't seem to be working very well. And generally, then, we have one of two options. Either we 
decide that we're just going to give up, that the Christian life doesn't work. Or we go on serving, but we do so with such a bad attitude that we're probably a worse pest than if we were selfish. We serve, but we do so out of a kind of a disgruntled spirit and a feeling that nobody really appreciates me. And after all, look at what I've given up. And uh, we probably annoy people more than if we were just downright selfish. Some of you have, may have seen the little epitaph. I think it first came from C.S. Lewis. Erected by her loving brothers in memory of Martha Gray. Here lies one who lived for others. Now she has peace, and so have they. <laughs> and, and somehow in, in approaching the, the Christian life in that way, we miss the whole point. We go around, we either give it up, or we go around with such a, an awful uh, martyr complex that we just make everybody uncomfortable around us. And God doesn't want us to try to resist efforts against, to act out of self. He just wants us to... Give Him, ourself. Don't think of life in terms of demands against yourself. Think of the Christian life in terms of demand against self itself. And just give it up. Say, Lord, here I am. You know what I'm like inside and out. You see my moods. You see my habits. You know what's down inside. And I want you to get in there and clean that rat's nest out. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't care how long it's going to take. But you're going to have to change me. And that's not only a one-time a one uh, uh, set of mind. It's a daily attitude. You get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and say, Lord, here I am. I'm a mess. You know just what I'm like. And I want to do better. You've got to change me. You've got to work in my life to make me what you want me to be. Salvation is yours alone. And I'm going to trust you for that. And you know what happens? All of a sudden, you discover what Jesus meant when he said, My burden is easy and my yoke is light. The most miserable Christians I know are people that are trying to suppress the self-life all the time. They're unhappy and miserable. It doesn't work. And they don't understand what Jesus means when he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I lived back in California, I had a dichondra lawn. Nobody up here knows what a dichondra lawn is, but I was told of all the virtues of growing dichondra. You never have to cut the stuff. And they promised me that I would have a labor-free yard. And uh, I really looked forward to that. The only problem was my dichondra yard was about 20% dichondra and about 80% weeds. And you can't kill weeds in dichondra because dichondra is a broadleaf, and if you spray to kill the weeds, you kill the dichondra too. So I, I conceived the idea of just feeding the lawn a lot and mowing it real short, and then it would look all right. And we lived in a neighborhood where everybody else's lawn looked like the green on a golf course, and so I was always a little bit embarrassed by our yard. And I discovered that I had to cut that lawn about three times a week. I'd cut it, and it would look great for about a day, and then the weeds would start coming up, and it would look like a cheap haircut, and I'd have to go out and cut it again. I have never worked so hard in my life to keep a yard. I worked myself to death. I hated that dichondra yard. You know, I could have solved the problem so easily. All I had to do was tear that dichondra out by the roots and start all over again. 
and I would have had a decent yard. But I didn't want to go to the trouble. That was too hard. And in the end, as I look back on it, I can see that I just, I worked myself to death for nothing. And I think that's the way a lot of people are about their Christian life. They don't realize that uh, they have to start all over. They just have to let the Lord tear the roots out. And uh, they keep trying to suppress the manifestations of the flesh. And they work at it, and they work at it, and they're miserable all the time. And they think the Christian life is really hard. And they avoid the really hard thing, and this is hard, and that is to say, Lord, here is the whole man. Here's the whole woman. That's tough. Because our pride comes into play at that point. But when we're willing to say, here I am, Lord, just as I am, clean me up, make me into something worthwhile, then the Christian life becomes exciting. Then things begin to happen. Some of you know Orville Stiles who has been here for years and years ministering to people in the Treasure Valley. He passed on to me this uh, poem about the old violin. Some of you may have, may have heard it before. It was battered and scarred, and the, action, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folk, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, a dollar, now two. Two dollars, who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going and almost gone. But no, from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up all the strings, he played a melody as pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars, who'll make it two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand what changed its worth. And the man replied, "'Twas the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred by sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the Master comes, and that foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul or the change that is wrought by the touch of the Master's hand. And that's what the Lord will do for you and for me. Let's pray. Let me ask you and all of us in the quietness of our own uh, spirits, our minds, to simply ask the Lord to take up residence there and dwell, as Paul puts it, deep down in our hearts. He's the only one that can <clears throat> rid us from the things that have uh, disturbed us and destroyed our life. Let's ask Him to be Lord in the fullest sense of the word. I want to leave you alone with your thoughts for just a few moments. Let's pray quietly and 
with sincerity, ask the Lord to search our hearts, bring to our minds the truth. And uh, let's pray until we hear the organ. And when the organ plays, then you're free to stand and be dismissed.